0: we have to be careful not to prematurely optimize our lives. We have an instance of truth. We have an instance where we have a breakthrough and we think, okay, this is it. And then we optimize everything around that breakthrough. And we fail to realize that life is going to be a long series of breakthroughs and success is going to come in layers. And there's never going to be a single moment we're going to point to and say, that's the moment. And so when we prematurely optimize, we're limiting options for future growth.
1: Welcome to Starve the Doubts. I'm your host, Jody Mayberry. Usually, I'm the host of Creating Disney Magic, but Jared Easley is taking some time off after the podcast movement conference, so I'm filling in for him today. I warned him not to let me behind the mic again, but here we are, and my guest is Todd Henry. Todd is an arms dealer for the Creative Revolution, obsessive notebook purchaser, host of the Accidental Creative Podcast. An author of three books, *The Accidental Creative*, *Die Empty*, and the newly released *Louder Than Words*. Todd, welcome
0: to *Starve the Dow*. Thanks, Jody. It's great to be here. I'm so glad you emphasized the obsessive notebook purchaser because it is so true. So, what's the story behind that? <laughs> I don't know. For for many many years, you know, I, I just have this sort of what is it? Is it, I don't know who the quote is. The first time I heard it was Warren Zevon who who actually said it, but. He said, we buy books because we believe we're buying the time to read them. And uh, I think I buy notebooks because I believe I'm buying the thoughts that will go in them when I buy a notebook or something. I think that's kind of what it is. But uh, I don't know. I'm just, uh, I've, I've always been obsessed with notebooks. I mean, I'm a writer by trade, right? So I guess that probably is par for the course.
1: Now, do you fill those notebooks up?
0: I do. I do. I've filled almost every notebook on my shelf. And it's funny because I come to the end of them and I realize, oh, I'm going on a trip. I'm doing your three speaking events next week and I'm on the last, next to last page of my notebook, right? So I need need a new one, (laughs) but sorry to derail the conversation.
1: Oh no, that's good. Now I have something that I, I haven't shared a whole lot, but since the day my son was born over 10 years ago, I have written every day in a notebook for him. And then my daughter was born. So now it's to both of them. And I'm on a ridiculous number of volumes. But I understand what you're saying, because when I'm going on a trip, I have to plan ahead. If my notebook is too close to the end, I use a certain leather journal. If it's too close to the end, I have to get an extra to take with me. So Absolutely. I feel your pain on Absolutely.
0: that Absolutely. Well, and, and by the way, that what an amazing gift you're giving to your children in doing that. And I, I think everybody Here's it. and they think, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that, but nobody actually does it, right? So good for you for doing that. That's an amazing daily discipline that is going to reap dividends for generations to come.
1: Oh, thank you. Now, I told Jeff Goins about it once, and he did the math and figured it was, at that point, over a million words, which I had never looked at it in that way before. That, that is a lot. And Yes, it's been every day, and there are plenty of days where I don't feel like doing it.
0: Well, I think that's the case with everything, right? I think that's the case with any, anything <laughs> worthwhile is going to be difficult at times. And it's not whether we're, we muster the will to do it when it's exciting. It's whether we muster the will to do it when we don't want to, but we know it's the right thing. You know, People who build a body of work that they can be proud of, just like you're doing for your children, right? People who do that are people who do the right thing, even when it's the difficult thing yeah. over the course of time.
1: Well, this this interview is supposed to be about you, Todd, not about me. So let's move to the icebreaker. Starve the Doubts usually begins with the same question. What is the best concert you have ever been to? Uh,
0: That is an easy one because it just happened about two months ago. It was uh, U2 in Chicago on their Innocence Experience Tour. And I know not everybody's a big U2 fan. I understand that that could be a polarizing thing. But the experience itself, the environment, the visuals, the way they use the stage, everything was just so unbelievable. The experience was amazing. So I think without a doubt, definitely the best concert I've been to.
1: I have heard that answer, you more than once. They must put on a pretty incredible show.
0: Well, they do. I, I think they have a very loyal fan base and they also have a very loyal hater base, right? So I think depending <laughs> on which camp you fall into, you'll either love or hate that answer. But you know, I'm not really so, I, it's not so much because of the music, although I, I have resonated with their music for a really long time. It's really more just about, I think, their commitment to kind of the the way that they engage with their audience. And then this tour is just amazing. The visuals are phenomenal and the sound was incredible and just everything about it just felt like a work of craftsmanship, which is hard to do for an arena show.
1: Well, we're, we're going to move next to True or False, where I, I'll give you a statement. And then you tell us if it's true or false, and then a brief explanation.
0: Is that why I should hook up the uh, little electrode on my finger right now? Is that that why you sent (laughs) that to me? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you got that in time. Okay, good. True or false, you should never give your email address to Disney.
0: Oh, very true. Yes, very true. You have done your research because... That is one of my pet peeves. I, one time we went to Disney and I gave them my email address for one thing when we were checking in and all of a sudden it was like email whack-a-mole for the next six months trying to opt out of all the lists I got added to.
1: I like that visual email (laughs) whack-a-mole. Okay, we're going to move to another part called versus. I'll give you two options. You tell us which one you choose with the explanation. Flying with United versus hitchhiking.
0: Oh, I will hitchhike. Although I can't say that because I'm flying United in about two weeks, but uh, I that's another boy. That's another one of those that you like found every single negative Twitter comment I've ever made. This is probably all of them. They're probably like three in my history. Yeah, I don't know. I've had, uh, you know, I've had some struggles with flying uh, United, but that's okay. You know, hey, everybody struggles. So
1: yeah, that's right. Okay, well, here's one that's not based on a negative Twitter comment. Having a passion for your work versus following your passion.
0: Cultivating a passion for your work, I believe is more important than following passion because I think mostly because I think we misunderstand the meaning of the word passion. I think we think it means like or interest, but I don't think we really understand that the root of the word passion means to suffer. It means to be willing to suffer on behalf of an outcome. So I think it's more important that we cultivate a sense of passion for the opportunities in front of us and we learn to pour ourselves fully into our work rather than waiting for some sort of flighting fancy to lead us to the promised land.
1: That's great. I love that outlook. I know Mike Rowe, who hosted the show Dirty Jobs, he gave a talk based on that, that all the people he met on Dirty Jobs, they brought their passion to work with them. And I don't think you hear that enough, so it's refreshing to hear you go there.
0: Well, I think we're we're in a unique age, right? Where I think we have a lot of latitude that previous generations have never had in terms of how we add value, what we do, the kind of work we engage in. I mean, even people who maybe are a little more limited in their options, you know, many of them still have some options, at least in you know in our our neck of the woods, right? And in, in the U.S. and the in the West, have at least a limited number of options, and I think. You know, with that, I think comes this almost like a, a blessing and a curse. It's easy to turn that blessing into a burden and to suddenly become paralyzed because we start questioning, well, what am I going to do? What kind of value am I going to contribute? I have so many things I could do. What if I pick the wrong one? And so I think um, you know, our, our forefathers didn't have to ask that question. They just did what was in front of them and they added value and they served and they you know, sort of navigated their way to a place of building a body of work they could be proud of over the course of time. And so I think that uh, you know, for all of us, I think the best path is forward, and then you can redirect as you go. But the important thing is that you're moving and you're looking for patterns.
1: Okay, one more verses for you: influence versus control. Influence,
0: by far, I think that we, in our culture, I think we celebrate control. I think that that's what is taught often. As you know, management theory, I think um, you're know, controlling this, controlling that. But I think that if you instill in people a sense of value or a set of values and you help them equip them with a compass and you tell them here is true north and let them make their own decisions, and in so you focus on influence, you influence them to make the right decision, then you don't have to worry about controlling them because they're going to have an internal guidance system. And I think that's what great leaders do. Great leaders focus on influence, not control. Okay. Well, new segment for you. Finish this
1: sentence. I will start a sentence and then you finish it. So you have your new book that just came out. So finish this sentence. The one thing most people misunderstand about writing a book is... That it's
0: fun? <laughs> no, that's probably not. That sounds way more, you know, The one thing people most misunderstand about writing a book is that it's a linear process, I think. Writing a book is not a linear process. Writing a book is a very circular process. It's an inside-out process, at least it is for me, in that I will rehash and rehash and reiterate many, many times before I get to the baseline of the idea I want to communicate. And so this book, Louder Than Words, started off looking very different from the way it ended up. And fortunately, I, I've been blessed with an editor who understands that process and gives me plenty of space to do that. But as I look at the research and I reform patterns and I relook at you know what the stories and the data in front of me are telling me, you know, different patterns emerge over time. You start thinking more systemically about things. And so... I would say for, for many people, they think that writing a book is you sit down, you open up a document on Microsoft Word and you just start typing until you get to 60,000 words and then you're done. And that's not at all what my experience is. Instead, it's very circular, very inside out. You write a book from the middle out, at least in in my experience.
1: For this next finish the sentence, I'm going to move from writing to speaking. The best speaker gift I have received
0: is... Oh, without question. Just recently, I received a genuine, and I say it that way, a genuine Texas belt buckle from my client in Houston, Texas. Uh, I thought I was finished. I I gave my talk. I said, thank you very much. I walked off stage and somebody came up and they said, no, 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 you need to come back up on stage. And they brought me back up and they had in a wooden box, a, a championship rodeo belt buckle with the words, Todd Henry, die empty with the little logo from my last book on it. And then Houston, Texas, and then the name of the company up above it, uh noble energy. It was just phenomenal. It was amazing, amazing uh gift. I've never I've never been given something like that before. It's pretty cool.
1: That is outstanding. Do you now do you are you gonna display that or are you gonna wear that proudly on the
0: streets of Cincinnati? You know I actually, I'm going back to Texas to speak in uh, about a month, and I thought maybe I'll maybe I'll wear it there. But then I thought, you know what? It says something like Business Innovation Conference or something at the bottom of it, and I thought that probably would get my butt kicked in a cowboy bar if I wore that. You know, <laughs> they probably look really good until they read it, and then they'd realize, okay, this is this guy's not the real deal. So,
1: <laughs> well, we're on the topic of speaking, and your speaking schedule has kept you very busy lately. When you only spend two weeknights in a month in your own bed. How do you stay connected to your
0: family? Yeah, that is a really, really good question. And this is something that, that my family's wrestled through because the, the very nature of my work is that I have to be with clients. I have to be out on the road and be with people. And so just like anything else, I think that you have to hustle in every area of your life. You have to hustle with your clients, hustle with your business. Uh, when I'm writing, I'm hustling. When I'm with my family, I'm trying to hustle the best that I can. I'm trying to be there with them and be present with them. You know, I think the problem comes when we have those areas of our life and we're divided up and we we decide we're going to hustle in one area, but then we're going to abdicate our contribution in another. And so I think, I mean, frankly, I think it's good that my kids see me hustling. It's good that they see me pursuing a goal. It's good that they see me working hard and stretching beyond myself. It's good that my kids see me fail from time to time. And we talk about that, you know, and they see me. We sit around the dinner table and I talk about what's working, what's not, where I'm succeeding, where I'm failing. And I I try to be really open. My wife and I do be really open about that with the kids because I want them to see that life is about tension and release. Life is a struggle. It's not all linear, it's not all a direct path. And so, you know when I'm not on the road, when I'm not working, and there are seasons of the year when that is the case, then I try to be fully present with my family. I mean, that's a big chunk of the summer. July was a bit of an anomaly for me this year, and then I had a bunch of uh, client engagements and speaking events. but we you know we also took two weeks of vacation in July, which is pretty great, too. And that was all family time, and I tried to be dedicated to being with the family during those those times. So I would say to just kind of a long way of of saying. Your life is about choices and you have to choose to be present where you are and you have to choose to be accountable to the blessings and the responsibilities you've been given in each moment. And the problem really comes when we begin to abdicate contribution in a very important area of our life because we're more obsessed with something that makes us look good to the outside world. And I think that's when we start to get into danger.
1: That's a beautiful answer, Todd, because I know there are people that get to spend more time at home than you do with your travel schedule. But even though they're home, they're probably less engaged. They're not fully present while they are there. So I I, I really like that answer, especially with me being on the road more now, and I've got two young kids at home. And yeah. that's a constant pull, the guilt of being gone, but the pull to do hard work. So I appreciate your comment
0: about the importance of kids seeing their parents working hard and hustling. And and I think also one thing we have to remember is that it's not, there's no easy answer. And I wish there was an easy answer. And, you know, would I say that I've never gone overboard in one area or another? No, of course not. Of course not. Yes, of course I've made mistakes. Of course I've been, you know, I've not been, I've been numbed out at the end of a long road trip or I've been not, you know, but it's a constant reminder to me and I keep this, I even wrote about this in Louder Than Words in my dailies. You know, it's a constant reminder to me every single day to engage meaningfully with each member of my family. And that's something I try to do every day. I have a meaningful conversation, you know, engage in a meaningful way, even when I'm on the road, try to do that as much as I can, because, you know, it's easy to lose sight of what your true priorities are when there are so many things jostling for your attention. Well, let's move to your,
1: your new book, Louder Than Words. It released on August 11th. And I noticed that with this book and your last book, Die Empty, you offered extras for anyone who pre-ordered the book, which I, maybe, maybe it's bad to say that after the book has come out. <laughs> but, but I'm curious, what are the keys to making sure that you offer pre-order extras that add value to the reader?
0: Well, so my big concern, Jody, is, is never whether I sell a bunch of books. And my publisher probably doesn't want to hear me say that. I'm not concerned about selling a bunch of books. Now, fortunately, the books have sold well, but I'm more concerned about people reading the book and putting it into practice because, you know, statistics will tell you that a lot of people buy books and they never read past chapter one. And those books end up sitting on their shelf. And I don't know about you, but I have never been transformed or changed by a book that's sitting on my shelf, you know, that I never read, that's just sitting there. You know, we don't learn by osmosis. And so one of the things that I wanted to do with this pre-order campaign, getting people to pre-order the book is create what I call you know, basically what is a book club where I walk people through the book one week at a time, one chapter at a time. And I read it with them and I share with them, hey, here's what I'm experiencing as I'm reading this again. And here's some of the stuff that I chose not to include. And here's why I didn't include it. Here's what I learned as I was writing this about you know that goes maybe even a level deeper than what the book does because there's you, know, you only have so much space in a book and you have to choose what you're going to put in and what you're not. And so the whole reason I did that primarily was because I wanted people to read the book. I want to get into it with them. I want to help people change how they approach their life, their work, and build a body of work they can be proud of that's reflective of them and not everybody else. And that's you know kind of what the emphasis of the book is. So that was the main reason why we chose to do the book club and the pre-order campaign. And why pre orders because I wanted to get it in people's hands week one so we could start reading it right away. And so that was that was really kind of the emphasis. I, I couldn't care less about people buying my book and sitting it on a shelf. That really does not matter to me whatsoever if they're not going to read it. I really want to make sure that people's lives are being transformed and action defines reality, not knowledge, not awareness, but action is what's going to change your life.
1: I'm glad you brought up the book club because the Die Empty book club was really interesting to be a part of. I found myself slowing down reading the book hmm. because I could have read it so much faster than the pace we went through in the book club. But I slowed down reading the book and looked forward to getting your special audio content every week talking about the book. That's a rare opportunity to actually hear what the author thinks of his own book as you're reading it yourself. I I really enjoyed that. I think that's one of the most fun pre-order Items for a book I've been a part. That's of. That's so
0: cool to hear. Thank you. And it, you know, it was a lot of fun for me. And I'll I'll be really frank and say, you know, there were times I was sitting in a hotel room in Phoenix, and I had my laptop out on the bed of the hotel room, recording those, you know, uh, those podcast episodes and kind of cranking through all the questions that people were sending in. But that was so much fun for me because very rarely, as an as an author, do you get the do you have the luxury of in real time, seeing how people are responding to what they're reading. you know, Often you put a book out and then it could be days or months or who knows how long before you start getting a lot of feedback about the book. And so to know that I'm going to be getting that consistent feedback and hearing questions and having people clarify what they understood, what they didn't understand, maybe places where I got off the rails as an author and didn't quite explain things well, that was so helpful to me as I looked to perfect my craft as well, right? As I look to become a better author. And then just to be able to add that kind of extra perspective and value to people was so, so gratifying. Because again, that's what I'm in it for. I'm not in this to sell books. There are a lot of easier ways to make a living than writing books. That's not what I'm in this for. What I'm in it for is to help people you know transform the way they see their work and to be better at what they do by meaningful action. So yeah, the book club was a lot of fun. I'm, that's the thing I'm most looking forward to over the next two months, to be frank, is, is walking with people through that book club.
1: Yeah. and as you described, it adds value to you. How many uh, pre-order offers are given that actually give value back to the author as well?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I guess that maybe you could call that selfish, right? In a way, but you know, it is going to be hours upon hours upon hours of my time to be able to, to pull this off and make it happen. But uh, it is so worth it again, because it's about getting these ideas, these messages into practical use in people's lives.
1: Well, the foundation concept of Louder Than Words is developing a strong sense of identity. I know so many people struggle with this. How can we begin to establish a strong sense of identity?
0: That's a great question. And I think one of the things that we hear more about these days probably than ever before is you know branding and personal branding and building your brand and building your platform and all of these things. And frankly, what a lot of people mean when they say that is construct some kind of external shell that's going to look really good to everybody else. It's going to make everybody else you know, like you, and then you can sell to them or whatever it is you're trying to do. And I think it's very unfortunate because that is not the foundation of most of the resonant artists, entrepreneurs, businesses that we know of the ones that most resonate with us, the ones that, that really capture our attention, but beyond capturing our attention, actually hold our attention, capture our imagination and resonate deeply are the ones that are founded upon authentic truth. Truth that is real to them. They understand who they are. They understand the battle lines that they've drawn for themselves. They understand what their work is founded upon when they're at their best. And they infuse that into the work that they do each day. So the way that we begin to do that, the way that we begin to drill down to that authentic investment in our work is we have to notice patterns. We have to pay attention to the times in our life when we are especially effective, when our work is especially resonant with other people, pay attention to how we're responding to our environment. You know, many people, we, we just, we numb out in the course of our work. You know, we, we kind of become emotionless as we go about our day because we've been trained to think that work is largely a mental, logical process, and we kind of crank through things, and we you know, we solve problems, and then we go home. And as a result, a lot of us numb out, and we don't infuse our authentic voice, who we are, into our work. And so a couple of questions that we can ask to help us Really drill down on that. Number one, when are you filled with compassionate anger? When are you angered throughout the course of your day? Now, I don't mean being slighted. That's, you know, most of us, we, you know, if we're slighted by someone, we feel angry, or if we get cut off in traffic or something. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, when do you see something and think, ah, somebody needs to do something about that? It's a great clue to some of the battle lines that might fuel your best work. What is that for you, that compassionate anger? Another one is what moves you emotionally? When are you moved emotionally? Now, I know for a, a lot of people, they turn off their emotions when they're at work. And we're actually even trained to do that, right? We're trained to kind of disengage emotionally. I think it's the worst thing we can do because our emotions are like an imprint that can show us. It's almost like a compass for us in some ways to show us how we can engage most effectively. So when are you moved with emotion? Is another great clue that you can look at to ask you know, what your most authentic work can be founded on upon for me for example i am moved profoundly by the stories of underdogs and always have been i mean i watch movies featuring underdogs you know a lot of sports movies like rudy or hoosiers or or even like the pursuit of happiness and you know, all these are stories of people who overcome great obstacles and that moves me profoundly and a lot of the work that i do the best work i do is targeted at underdogs because I am moved by the stories of underdogs. So what is that for you? What moves you emotionally? So these are just a couple of things. i go going to do a bunch more in Louder Than Words. These are just a couple of things to help us begin to drill down into who we are, what we care about, so that we can begin then to infuse that into our work so that it resonates deeply with the people we're trying to reach.
1: That's great. That's a wonderful place to start. And I'm looking forward to getting deep into this book, Louder Than Words. But your last book, Die Empty was great. And I know you hear that a lot. It's referenced as a must-read business book quite a bit. But when you have a piece of work that is as popular as Die Empty was, is there any concern or nervousness that your next piece of work won't live up to your last success? Oh, of course.
0: Yeah. And I think anybody who tries to tell you that that is not the case is lying through their teeth. Of course. That's the real reason for the uh, electrode that you sent, right? It's like a lie detector test. (laughs) No, not at all. This book, you know, no, of course. Yes, everybody. I don't care who they are. And I have sat down with some people that it would probably surprise you how much they struggle with the fear of getting it wrong, how much they struggle with the fear of making something that doesn't resonate or in some way ruining this thing that they've built. It's so easy at some point, Jody, when we get to a point of, of, Seeming success in our life, in whatever way we want to define that, it's easy to start protecting the ground we've taken instead of taking new ground. It's easy to start circling the wagons and say, "Okay, well, you know, close enough. Let's just protect what we've already what we've already accomplished and defend." We all know organizations that do that. We all know people who do that, and unfortunately, that's the beginning of a slow decline for most of those people in organizations. Because if you're not taking new ground, if you're not growing, then you've begun the gradual process of death. And so you know, of course I'm afraid. Of course, you know, I would say afraid might be a strong word to use. I would say, you know, nervous maybe is a better word to use. I think that you know, we tend to think that to be nervous is a bad thing. I think nervousness can be a good thing because it means you care about your work. You know, I think if you're never nervous when you're doing something important to you, I think that's a sign that maybe you've emotionally checked out of life. I think we should always feel a little bit nervous and anticipative anytime we're doing something that matters to us. People ask me all the time, are you afraid when you go on stage? Do you get stage fright? Because I'm speaking in front of thousands of people pretty regularly. And I'll say, no, I'm not afraid because I know that I can go up there and you know I could just go on autopilot and just do it because I've done this so many times. But that's the thing that makes me nervous. I'm not afraid, but I'm nervous because I don't want to go on autopilot. I want to go up there and I want to deliver the best talk I can give every time I'm in front of a group because this is my chance to influence lives. It's my chance to impact people. And I care deeply about that. I don't just do this for kicks. I do it because I love it and I love the impact and I really care about people. I really want to see them be better at what they do. Same reason I write books. So yes, of course, you know, a little bit nervous that the book isn't going to resonate or it's not going to connect with people. But I think some people, when they feel that, they go into protect mode. And that's exactly what I am trying to discipline myself not to do. But instead, just to keep pushing forward and keep producing what it is I think is in front of me to produce and keep engaging meaningfully every day and building a body of work that I can point to with pride. And of course, I'm going to get some things wrong. But over the course of time, I believe that the long arc of that body of work will bend toward my vision and bend towards something that I will point to with pride. Well, you mentioned
1: protect mode
0: and I had a feeling of that recently, or, or maybe it was bigger
1: than protect mode, but I was at the podcast movement conference in Fort Worth, Texas, and you've been at this podcasting for 10 years. That's a long time. And you know, podcasters are a great community of people, yes. but it, it's so easy to get discouraged by the success that you see others having. And at one point, over the weekend of the conference, I thought, geez, I should just give up on podcasting because Roman Mars does so much better and he wears nicer pants. So (laughs) how how can I get around the paralyzing feeling that creeps in from comparison?
0: So this is a great question and there is no easy answer once again. And I I would love to be able to just give you some kind of pithy tweetable thing to solve all of that because I'm still resolving it myself. I think that we have to recognize and this is a principle that I've I've written down on you know on a post it note I've put on my mo- computer monitor many times as a reminder you have to run your own race you have to run in the lane that you're in and keep your eyes fixed on the horizon not the finish line but the horizon you have to keep your eyes fixed it's okay to benchmark it's okay to look left and right it's okay to compare yourself in the sense that you want to learn what's working and how you can maybe learn from that or emulate that in order to apply it to what you're already doing. But if you look to the left and to the right for too long, you will eventually find that your body wants to follow where your eyes go. And if you're looking at somebody else's body of work, you are going to drift toward them into their lane and you're going to get off course pretty quickly. And this is unfortunate to me. And and the only reason this exists is because we have a culture that tells us, hey, if you want to be valuable, you have to be one of those people one of those 0.01% of people who become celebrated for their work, right? The reality is that most of us are never going to be one of those 0.01% of people who are celebrated for their work. I believe, and some may disagree with me, I believe that that is not the point of life. I don't believe that the point of life is to be celebrated for your work. I believe the point of life is to do work that you're proud of, work that is excellent, work that reflects your values, work that will stand in 10 years as a testament to your focus, your energy, your time. And you can point to and say, yes, that represents me. And you know what? If it gets celebrated, great. If it doesn't get celebrated, it doesn't matter because you did not sell yourself out in the process. I know a lot of miserable people, Jody, who are very successful in the world's eyes, and they're absolutely miserable. They have money, they have success, they have fame, and they're miserable because none of it, none of it could buy back a sense of integrity and pride in their work. It doesn't matter how much money they have, how much fame they have. You can't spend fame, right? You can spend money, but you can't spend money to buy character. You can't spend money to buy integrity. And so I would encourage people with, you know, the reality of the fact, which is that I have met many excellent janitors and many mediocre CEOs in my day, you know, people with tremendous, tremendous integrity who are building up a, a body of work that nobody's going to point to at the end of the day and say, wow, look at that. That's an amazing floor that you just swept. But they beam with pride because they're engaging their work in a way that matters to them. So I would encourage you, Jody, with these words, just stay focused, run your race, build your body of work. And you know what? It's going to get recognized by some people and it's going to be ignored by other people. But the most important thing is, will you be able to point to it in 10 years and say, yes, I made that. And that's, I I believe at the end of the day, that's the only thing that brings us satisfaction.
1: Well, I think when we're comparing ourselves to others, we quite often are just looking at what we feel is small progress and comparing it to the big victories we see others get. But I know you talk about how it's the small victories that matter. How do you keep your eye on those small
0: victories and realize the impact that they really have? Yeah. So this moment, this day, you know, this instance, this decision, and that, by the way, that word decision comes from the root word that means to cut off so when we, and we live in an age where people don't like to make decisions, and let's be honest, even about committing to social events or whatever. People don't want to commit to things. They want to put it off as long as possible because they're afraid something better might come along. You know, One of the roles of the artist, one of the roles of the entrepreneur or the creative pro in general is to make decisions, to cut off, to choose a path. And so I think that one of the, the best things that we can do with our work is to make decisions and make bold decisions and stand by our decisions and pursue those decisions with full vigor. And I think that we have to make sure that we're basing that decision around something that we really care about and not just... And that's where authenticity comes into play, right? That we're, The only way we can make a decision with integrity is to found it upon something that we truly care about, something that, that really is reflective of who we are. And it's only when we cease to do that, I think, that we start to get off course and we start to feel a little bit like we're selling ourselves out. There's a great quote by Thomas Merton, one of my favorite thinkers. He said, I'm going to just give you the the last half of the quote, but he said, they want quick success and they're in such a hurry to get it, they cannot take time to be true to themselves. And when the madness is upon them, they, they justify their action as a species of integrity. What that means is when we're under pressure, we justify selling out. We justify selling out our intuition. We justify selling out our deeper values, the things that we really want, because we think, oh, well, you know, I'll sell out a little bit now and I'll be celebrated for my work and it'll all work out in the end. And then uh, the end, they look back and they realize that the price they paid was simply too great.
1: Todd, I I have a feeling I could talk to you for quite a bit longer. (laughs) There's so much more I want to get into, but I should probably start to land this plane. And as we wrap up, tell me who is doing something that
0: interests you? Oh man, that is a great question. You know, I've I've mentioned his name a couple of times on a couple of different podcasts, but I, I just keep coming back to this name, Steve Martin. <laughs> and people say, What? Steve Martin, you know, the comedian? No. Steve Martin, the novelist? No. Steve Martin the actor? No. Steve Martin, the bluegrass banjo player, right? No. This is a guy who has over the course of time reinvented himself. In so many different ways, but there is a consistent through line. There's something I talk about louder than words. There's a consistent through line within his work of curiosity. And it's really interesting to watch his career because I think many people, if they had the kind of success Steve Martin had as a stand-up comedian, they would still to this day be trying to, you know, basically go out there and parade out the old jokes from 30 years ago and, you know, fill clubs and make a living or whatever. But this guy has basically followed his intuition, committed to growth, and continued to grow and express himself in new ways over the course of time. And by the way, he's not just out there playing banjo as a lark. He is amazing. And he's making great music that is being pointed to by industry experts and saying, wow, this guy's really good, right? This isn't just some fun hobby he's doing. And so I think each of us can take a lesson from that and say, you know what? I am not going to become fossilized around a set of assumptions about who I am and the value that I contribute, but I'm going to continue growing. I referenced in, in Louder Than Words, Donald Knuth, who said, and Kevin Kelly actually referenced this paper, which is about computer code. So you know, it's a little bit uh, gnarly in terms of, you know, the, sort of the context for all of this. But basically, Kevin Kelly uh, was being interviewed and he said, we have to be careful not to prematurely optimize our lives we have an instance of truth. We have an instance where we have a breakthrough and we think, okay, this is it. And then we optimize everything around that breakthrough. And we fail to realize that life is going to be a long series of breakthroughs and success is going to come in layers. And there's never going to be a single moment we're going to point to and say, that's the moment. And so when we prematurely optimize, we're limiting options for future growth. So long way of saying, I think Steve Martin is somebody who has exhibited that over the course of his career, these intuitive leaps that have led to a substantive body of work.
1: Yes, I've been a Steve Martin fan for a long time and his banjo playing is perhaps even better than his acting and writing. He's that
0: good. It it may be. And for some people, they may say, you know, banjo playing better than is, you know, a phrase that, you know, whatever. But uh, yeah, but he really is. As a bluegrass aficionado, I would say, yes, absolutely. He's phenomenal.
1: Well, Todd, tell us where people can pick up a copy of your book, Louder Than Words, and connect with you online.
0: So the best way to connect with me is toddhenry.com, two Ds, T-O-D-D-H-E-N-R-Y, and you can get to my podcast, The Accidental Creative from there, all of my books from there, and then Louder Than Words is available wherever you buy books.
1: All right, Todd, thank you so much for being a guest on Starve the Doubts. I appreciate you taking the time to talk, and I hope Louder Than Words is a smashing success. Thanks so
0: much. <laughs> life is about choices and you have to choose to be present where you are and you have to choose to be accountable to the blessings and the responsibilities you've been given in each moment. And the problem really comes when we begin to abdicate contribution in a very important area of our life because we're more obsessed with something that makes us look good to the outside world. And I think that's when we start to get into danger.